And our children's church this morning is just for our three and four-year-olds, so all of our other children are invited to remain here in the sanctuary, and I know that Miss Ann put some um, activities for you in the lobby, so if you're a, a child, uh, maybe an adult, I don't know, who'd like um, something um, for the service that connects with the service and activities this morning, if you didn't pick those up already, you can head to the lobby and pick those up. So great to see you this morning. If we haven't met yet, my name is Cody. I'm the senior pastor here. Thank you so much for worshiping with us today. You're beautiful. And uh, it was one year and 12 weeks ago uh, that we last met like this as one church family. The following 11 weeks, we did not meet at all. And then exactly one year ago this weekend, we started to regather uh, but as a church with two services and all kinds of, of other uh, requirements. And so I'm so grateful um, for this day. Glad that we get to be together as one church and one faith family. Uh, grateful for the Lord's provision for us. Grateful for the healing that has happened and continues to happen. Grateful that you're here today. Church, you're beautiful. I love you. I'm proud to be your pastor. Thank you so much for worshiping with us. Uh, let's begin with a word of prayer. Father, on this Memorial Day weekend, uh, we are mindful of those uh, military men and women who have laid down their lives for our country. And so, Lord, uh, we remember them with gratitude. We thank you for their service and for their sacrifice. And we ask this morning that you would be gentle and kind with their families, those friends and family members who are remembering them because these losses are not all in the distant past. And Father, as we remember those who laid down their lives for our country, we can't help but be mindful of those who are serving today, and we thank you for their service to our country. And Lord, as we think about the sacrifice that those who laid down their lives have made, I can't help but think of Jesus Christ who laid down his life for us. And so, Lord, in their sacrifice, would you point us to you, help us to see uh, all that you have given for our salvation and for our eternity, for the freedom of our souls. And, Lord, would you, uh, through your gospel, draw people to you for their salvation and for their comfort. Father, we love you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We're in Genesis chapter 2 this morning, and so if you have your Bible with you, would you please go ahead and open to Genesis 2. If you don't have a Bible with you, there should be a black one in the pew rack in front of you, and uh, I want to encourage you to open that up, especially if you're new with us. Uh, it is in your best interest to have a copy of the Bible open the whole time this morning, and we're going to refer back to it a few different times, and that'll help your study and uh, your comprehension of what we're tackling today. We've learned a lot so far uh, in our study of Genesis. In just the first chapter, uh, we learned that creation is an act of God alone by which he brings into existence everything that now exists. There's nothing that exists before his creative act. It is God and God alone, perfect Trinitarian eternal unity. Uh, and then when God speaks... All things come into existence. He did all of this for his glory. He's not a God who's needy. He's not a God who is flawed. He is a God who is perfect. And so for his glory, he creates. And what we've learned also is that all of God's creation is good. All of it is good. I don't know how mosquitoes are good, but all of it is good according to the declaration of God. Here's the question, though. What happens when God finishes with creation? You might say, well, 
didn't he rest? Well, that's, that's right. That's what we studied last week, chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. God indeed rested uh, on the seventh day. But that's not the question. What does God do with his creation once he's done creating? Uh, the answer to this question is that God continues to sustain and care for his creation. He's not like some withdrawn clockmaker who winds the universe up and sits it on his shelf and just steps back to watch it unwind and see what happens. He is a God who is intimately involved with the direction and the care of his creation. The theological word for this is providence. And providence is the idea that we're going to trace through Genesis chapter 2 this morning. Sometimes we use the word providence and sovereignty interchangeably, but there's a distinct difference between the two. I want to give you a simple definition of providence that will help our study this morning. So here's how you define providence as it relates to God. The providence of God is the working of God's sovereignty to continually uphold, guide, and care for his creation. You'll notice from this definition that God's providence and his sovereignty are different. They're related, but they're different. God's sovereignty describes his control, his authority, his covenantal presence over his creation. And so these bottom two lines just give you a really simple and clear difference between the two. Sovereignty is God's rule, but providence is God's care. Providence is where we see God's compassion and kindness and love employed as he is actively involved in guiding his creation forward. God's providence is not merely displayed in times of ease, but it's especially displayed in challenging times. And so you can think of a real quick, easy New Testament example of this when the Apostle Paul says that Christians do not grieve as those who have no hope it's because even in loss, the child of God trusts in the providential care of our Creator. So the providence of God is on display right here in Genesis chapter 2. He's the God who creates as well as the God who cares for His creation. And it's vital for us that we're able to recognize the providence of God, not only in the Scripture, but also in our own lives. And that's my goal this morning. My purpose today is to help you see God's providence at work, not just in the passage, but in your own life, so that you will respond to him with an unwavering trust. If we study this passage right, we walk out of here with our faith in God fortified, no matter what the day holds for us. So I'm going to show you four evidences of God's providence in creation and draw some appropriate connections to our own lives as well. Follow along with me as I read. Look at your Bible, Genesis chapter 2. I'm going to read from verse 4 to verse 17. These are the records of the heavens and the earth concerning their creation. At the time that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens, no shrub of the field had yet grown on the land, and no plant of the field had yet sprouted, for the Lord God had not made it rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground. But mist would come up from the earth and water all the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man out of the dust from the ground and breathed the breath of life into his nostrils, and the man became a living being. The Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he placed the man he had formed. 
The Lord God caused to grow out of the ground every tree pleasing in appearance and good for food, including the tree of life in the middle of the garden, as well as the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river went out from Eden to water the garden. From there it divided and became the source of four rivers. The name of the first is Pishon, which flows through the entire land of Havilah, where there is gold. Gold from that land is pure. Bedellium and onyx are also there. The name of the second river is Gihon, which flows through the entire land of Cush. The name of the third river is Tigris, which runs east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and placed him in the Garden of Eden to work it and watch over it. And the Lord God commanded the man, You are free to eat from any tree of the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for on the day you eat from it, you will certainly die. Your first question might be this. Why is there a second creation account in the book of Genesis? We just finished one, and now we've started another. But I think it's most helpful to think of this creation account in this way. This is not a second creation account, but it's a more localized scene. It's as if the camera operator zooms in on this one particular aspect of creation so that you and I can see it up close, hear more of the dialogue, see how the story unfolds with greater detail. Chapter 1 shows this creation from the vantage point of the cosmos, but chapter 2 shows this creation from the vantage point of the garden. Now, God's providence, as I've already defined it, is God's care and his sustaining work over his creation, in his creation. And there are four clear examples of God's providence in this story that I want to make sure you see. The first is this. It's God's detailed care for his creation. The first evidence of God's providence in this story is his detailed, minutia-like care for his creation. There's not one detail of God's creation that misses his attention. Verses 4 through 6 describe a time in God's creation where the earth is not yet fully formed. Verse 5 tells us there was not yet any shrubs or plants. And according to verse 5, there are two things missing from the planet at this time. The first is rain. And the second is a man to work the ground. So looking at verse 5, here's the question to you. Why is it that there is not yet rain on the earth? According to verse 5, the reason is God. The Lord God had not made it rain on the land. In knowing what you do of the creation account, why is there no man to work the ground yet? Well, the reason is the same as why there's no rain, because the Lord God has not yet created him. Why hasn't God sent rain yet by verse 5? We don't know. The passage doesn't tell us. The passage isn't interested in why it is that way. However, it does give us an important detail about how God is caring for the earth at this point. In verse 6, look at it with me. It says this, but mist would come up from the earth and water all the ground. Now, your Bible might not say mist. Your Bible might say springs. That's a perfectly valid translation. The point is this, that although the rains had not yet come, God did not leave his creation without water. He cared for and sustained the land by water that came up from the earth. So don't miss this. God's knowledge of his creation is so precise. His care for his creation is so minute that he knows and provides the moisture that the soil needs to host life. It doesn't happen by accident. 
It isn't left on the back burner and forgotten about. God knows what the dirt needs. And that level of detail reminds me of something that Jesus said in Matthew chapter 6. And you're familiar with these words of his. They'll be on the screen. He said, don't worry about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, or about your body, what you will wear. Consider the birds of the sky. They don't sow or reap or gather into barns, yet our heavenly Father feeds them. Aren't you worth more than they? And why do you worry about clothes? Observe how the wildflowers of the field grow. They don't labor or spin thread, yet I tell you that not even Solomon in all his splendor was adorned like one of these. If that's how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and thrown into the furnace tomorrow, won't he do much more for you, you of little faith? In light of Genesis 2, perhaps we could add to birds and flowers, see how God waters the land Doesn't God delight in you more than soil? If God knows the detailed needs of birds and flowers and soil, doesn't he also know your needs? Won't he also provide for you? Do you believe that? I mean, in your life, not theoretically, not theologically, do you believe that in the way you live your days? Well, you do believe it if you Believe in a God of providence, a God of compassionate care who meets the needs of his creation. And so here at the very beginning, just seeing dirt get water, we have to ask ourselves the question, what worry has been consuming you? Are you responding to your challenging situations as one who belongs to a caring God or as a practical atheist? We do it all the time. And when we do, we need to stop and be reminded that the God who takes care of birds and flowers and dirt also takes care of us. So here we see God's providence in his attention to detail in his creation. There's a second sign of his providence here in the story, and it's God's special creation of man. You think God takes care of dirt? Wait till you see what he does with man. My goodness, verse 7 says this, Then the Lord God formed the man out of the dust from the ground and breathed the breath of life into his nostrils, and the man became a living being. Now, on the topic of providence, some theologians will draw a hard line between God's creation and God's providence. So they'll say creation happens first, and then God's providence is employed later. Some theologians don't like to mix the two. They have their reasons for keeping the two separate, and they're not entirely wrong. But my argument here is that the intimate way in which God creates man is an example of his providence. Now, it's not as if God was cold and distant whenever he created stars and animals by his creative word. It's not that he just sort of did that flippantly without care. It brought him great delight to see his creative word Uh, in, uh, in action. But here with man, God creates man in a way that is utterly unique from everything else in creation. God gets down in the dirt and he puts his own breath in his lungs. It's utterly different and it shows again the uniqueness of humanity in all of God's creation. Now I think as an aside, it's important to note here that humans do not have a pre-existence before creation. 
It's not as if God is surrounded by spirit babies and then he sends them to earth uh, to women who are pregnant. Now, my grandmother is 92 years old. She's a hero of the faith for me. And she's always said this to me uh, when I was growing up and she wanted to say nice things. She would say, I'm so glad that when God looked out at all the grandchildren he could have given me, he chose you and sent you to me. And I've never, that's really sweet. I've never had the heart (laughs) to tell her, thanks, Nanny, I love you too, but you know that's heresy that the Mormon church perpetuates. (laughs) Don't do that. I just say thanks. I love you too, but I want to know what you did wrong for God to send you my brother Rory. (laughs) But here as God forms man from the dirt, he doesn't just speak. He forms him from the dirt. And then he doesn't just speak life, he breathes life into him. In this intimate act, I think we see God's providence on display, and it's a providence that impacts our lives even now. He has formed each of us uniquely. God's beautiful imagination is seen in the diversity of human appearance. You are who you are by God's design. However, There are many among us who look in the mirror and hate what they see. I think particularly of our young women who are surrounded by messaging that trains you to hate your appearance. Advertisers and influencers have long told you that your appearance is wrong. They've set a standard of beauty that is, number one, completely fictitious, number two, totally unattainable, and number three, can be addressed if you buy what they are selling. They don't care about your appearance. They only care about your money. It becomes even more challenging when those standards of beauty are adopted by the people around you in your peer group, and then they become enforcers of what's beautiful and what's not. You should pity those people. How sad are they, so insecure in their own appearances, that they actually think they increase their value by masking their God-given uniqueness. You're made in the image of God by His creative design. And so embrace the way He made you. Don't let anyone tell you your skin is too light, your skin is too dark, your hair is too straight, your hair is too curly. You're too much of this and not enough of this. You are God's special creation bearing his image. Now, here's where someone could push back and say, okay, Cody, I understand that, but what about people who are born with physical or mental challenges? Well, here's the thing with God's providence. Sometimes God chooses to care for you by means of challenges. Providence often comes in the form of challenges or hardship. And I know these can be really complicated situations and complicated discussions, but here's the bottom line. No person is a mistake. No person is a reject. No disability or sickness is a sign of God's displeasure or punishment or failure. Quite the opposite. It may be the very way God shows his providence in your life. So that's why God's people value all of life. All of it. See the dignity and worth in every person who bears the image of God. 
So, evidence of God's providence in this story so far. This providence is seen in his detailed care for creation, his special creation of man. Third, it's seen in God's presence with man. So, verses 8 through 15 give us a detailed description of the garden in Eden. I think this is important, an important detail to point out. We just use the language Garden of Eden to sort of describe this one singular location. But what the text tells us is that God has created a garden, and that garden is in a region known as Eden. And quite specifically, it's on the east side of Eden. So where the Bible also uses the phrase Garden of Eden, it's not incorrect. It's just shorthand for this garden that's in a region known as Eden. And so the description of Eden is of a paradise beyond our imagination. The Hebrew word for Eden can also be translated as delight. And so the garden is full of food, and it's full of beauty, and it's full of luxury. It's full of life, and, and the four rivers that emerge from it give life to other lands. And then in verse 15, we're told that God placed the man in the Garden of Eden to work it and watch over it. Now, if you were to continue to read the Bible with this description of the Garden of Eden in your back pocket, it would not be long before you came across similar language again. In fact, in Exodus chapter 25, we find the description of the tabernacle. The tabernacle was a holy tent where God dwelt in a special way with his nomadic people. The tabernacle is a forerunner to the temple. And in the description of the tabernacle you will find that several of the details sound like the Garden of Eden, including a lampstand that is put in the center of the tabernacle that has branches and buds and flowers reminiscent of the tree of life. You were to keep reading, you'll land in 1 Kings and you'll read descriptions of the temple. And again, Garden of Eden language is used to describe what the temple was supposed to look like. It had wood carvings that gave it a garden-like ambiance. And then later, Revelation chapter 22, verses 1 and 2, you'll read that just as a river flowed out of Eden, so a river flows from the end times temple of God. And so, What's the point of all of that? Well, the point is that Eden is not just some farmland. It is a type of temple or, or a temple garden, a sanctuary of sorts. Uh, one theologian named G.K. Bill goes so far as to say this, the Garden of Eden was the first temple in the first creation. And do you know what every temple needs? Every temple needs a priest, and that's where God's purpose for Adam in verse 15 comes into play. God placed Adam in the garden to work it and watch over it. Those are the two verbs. Work it, watch it. Now, those two verbs are translated elsewhere in the Bible as serve and guard. And they often show up together. And when they do appear together, they are most often describing the work of priests in caring for the temple. They serve and they guard. They serve in the temple as they carry out the work that has to be done there to bring people before God and to work their uh, forgiveness and sacrifices. That's how they work it. They guard it by maintaining the purity of the space and the work that goes on there. To work and to watch is priestly activity. So Adam was a type of priest. 
in Eden, a type of temple where God and man could dwell together in perfect unity. And we have good reason to believe from the language of verse 15 that Adam's first task was not to farm, but to worship. How often have you thought, man, I wish I, I could have the kind of access to God that Adam did in Genesis 2. Oh, ye of little Bible knowledge, don't you know that you have God the Holy Spirit dwelling in you? And what is that other than the very providence of God caring for you, sustaining you, protecting you? And he's doing that not from some distant place, but from the seat of your very soul. Just like Adam, you've been saved by God to be his priest. In 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, we're told that we are a royal priesthood so that we may proclaim the praises of the one who called us out of darkness and into his marvelous light. God saved you to serve him and to guard the gospel through the Holy Spirit who lives in us. God's presence in you is part of his beautiful providence. So God's providence is seen in his detailed care of creation, his special creation of man, his presence with us, and fourth and finally, it's God's faithful word to man. In verses 16 and 17, we find what's often called the covenant of Adam or the Adamic covenant. Uh, and it's not a formal covenant as we'll find later on in Scripture, but it still has covenant language. Now, covenants, first of all, were, um, were treaties between different nations. And covenants... Uh, have distinct characteristics. There's always a greater party and a lesser party. Uh, the greater party sets the conditions for the covenant. The greater party says, here are the blessings you, the lesser party, receive for adhering to the covenant. And also, here are the curses if you break the covenant. And so, in this instance, God's the greater party, man's the lesser. And God promises blessing to the man when he eats from any tree of the garden, he promises curse to the man if he eats from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now, remember a couple of weeks ago when we're studying chapter 1, uh, one thing that stood out to us was that God blessed Adam and Eve by giving them a command. And so, obedience to the command was the sphere in which God's blessings were enjoyed. And that's the same thing that's happening here. God gives a command, and that command is a blessing when it's obeyed. God likewise gives a warning, and guess what? That warning is also a blessing when it's obeyed. That warning is for Adam's good, not to restrict him, but to keep him in the blessing of God. So both God's commands and warnings are gifts from his providence that help us live today in the blessing that he desires to give. How many times have you read these instructions to Adam and you've thought to yourself, it's so simple, dude. You just got to obey one thing. You just got to do one. You don't have to mess up this one thing. Do everything else. Just don't mess up one thing. Man, it is not that hard. Just do what God says. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5, verse 43, You've heard it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I tell you, love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be children of your Father in heaven. So there's just one command from Jesus. And how's that going for you, little Adam? It's just one thing. 
Can't we just do the one thing? It's so simple. It's so clear. What does Adam ultimately show us in chapter 3? We'll get there in a couple of weeks. But that it's impossible for us to do this on our own, and we are in such desperate need of the grace and compassion and sacrifice of our Father to redeem us from our sin. We are ultimately not faithful, but God is faithful. That's good news for us. It's an example of his providence. Don't you remember what we read in 1 John chapter 1, verse 9? If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. God's providence always leads us in paths of righteousness. He is such a good God. So I've shown you from the passage this morning four evidences of God's providence, all of which have correlations to our own lives. God's providence is seen in his detailed care for creation, his special creation of man, his presence with us, and finally his faithfulness to his word. And this is where you get to object. And I'll provide the objection for you. This is it. You would say, okay, God's providence sounds nice, but it isn't a reflection of real life. Life is full of pain and hardship. Life isn't Eden. So how then can we call God caring or providential? It's a fair question. And that question, I find, almost always comes from a place of personal pain and disappointment. But God's people have never viewed our hardships through the lens of Eden, but through the lens of Golgotha. The death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, our Savior, informs our understanding of God's providence in the midst of our suffering and sorrow. The cross teaches us that sometimes God in his providence allows hardship. And sometimes not only does he allow hardship, he appoints hardship. The cross also teaches us that God's purposes in suffering are ultimately good and trustworthy. Now, the New Testament writers were not so concerned with the origins of suffering. They were more focused on Christ's victory over all of it. They saw Jesus risen from the dead, and they knew that no matter what the world threw at them, God would see them through it all to his eternal glory. So Christians never deny the reality of suffering. If anything, we are the most realistic about it of all people. And we confront it with belief in a good and compassionate and victorious God. So what do we do then with a God who is providential, a God who upholds, guides, and cares for us? There are two right responses, Christian. The first is this, you trust him. I found that trusting God is easy until calamity strikes. And perhaps you've experienced this also. Life turns to chaos and you begin to accuse God, to blame him, to doubt him. But if God is compassionate and caring, and and if God's providence not only has a way through the chaos, but purpose within it, then he is a God to be trusted. And trust does not require knowledge of his plan. And trust does not require an explanation of his reasons. He does not owe us an account. But trust comes from knowing his love for you in Christ. 
So without knowledge of what's to come next, without knowledge of his circumstantial will, we can trust him because of his revealed will and what we know of him from ages past all the way back to the dawn of creation. He's a compassionate, kind, and loving God. And so a prayer of trust in the midst of chaos might sound something like this. God, I don't know what you're going to do, but I know what you have done. You gave your son for me. You saved me from my sin. I'm your child. You're my God. I'm with you all the way. So the first thing you're going to do with a God who is providential is you're going to trust him. And second, you're going to obey him. If only there was a song about trusting and obeying the Lord. You embrace his word as a path of life and protection from destruction. And as you live in line with his word, you'll fulfill his purposes for your life. God, the Holy Spirit, dwells in you and as his priest, you are tasked with serving him and guarding your holiness. The early church found such strength in the doctrine of the providence of God. And they employed it as they endured the everyday sorrows and junk of life, as well as the most intense persecution for their faithfulness to Christ. And it's this that led the Apostle Paul to an amazing prayer for the church in Ephesus to be strengthened by God's providence. And here's Paul's prayer for them and for us. I pray that he may grant you according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened with power in your inner being through his spirit. And that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. I pray that you being rooted and firmly established in love may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the length and width, height and depth of God's love. And to know Christ's love that surpasses knowledge so that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. And now to him who is able to do above and beyond all that we ask or, uh, or could imagine according to the power that works in us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. Brothers and sisters, what a gift to trust a God like that. What a treasure to obey a God like this. How incredible to belong to a God of immeasurable love, a God of providence. What if you're not a follower of Jesus Christ? Let me talk to you for just a moment. If you're not a Christian, I, I wonder, what is your perspective of God? Perhaps you view him as cold, distant, uninterested, mean. But the testimony of the Bible and the story of the lives of so many people in this room is that he is a God of love and grace. And the way we know that is what he has done to solve the problem of our sin. You see, you and I are sinners. Our sin has separated us from God. It's our fault. We're the ones who have committed the sin against the holy God who is our creator. And there's nothing you and I can do to bridge that gap that we've created between us and God by our sin. But here we see the providence of God, his care for you, his compassion for you, and that he sent his one and only son, Jesus Christ, who's born of a virgin. He is fully God and fully man. And he died on the cross in your place for your sin. All of your brokenness that separated you from God, all of that Jesus is held accountable for at the cross. 
And three days later, he rose from the dead. And that's why we know this is true. That's why we know this is the way to eternal life. If he's still dead, this is a, a waste of time this morning. But he rose from the dead. And he keeps his promise to you that if you will turn from your sin and you will trust in him and make him the Lord of your life, he'll save you from your sin, forgive you of it. And he will give you his righteousness, his holiness, his eternal life. Everything your creator intends for you is given in that moment when you say yes to Jesus Christ. And that invitation is to you today that you would recognize you were created for a purpose by a God who loves you and wants you to be with him forever and ever. And if I knew that God was for me and held eternal life for me, I'd want to start that life today, and you can, when you make Jesus the Lord of your life. When we're done this morning, grab me, one of the pastors or a friend you're here with. Do not leave this piece of property until your soul is set with your Savior. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word to us and what it teaches us about you. So many times we just read the Bible looking for commands. It can be hard to ask questions about what the text teaches us about you. And right here in chapter 2, we've seen your providence on full display. And we praise you for it. God, you're so good and kind and compassionate and caring and gentle. You're a protector and you're a guide. And we praise you for this. And so, Father, I pray for my brothers and sisters that you would strengthen them in the trials they face this day as they recognize your providence all around them. Let us walk through these trials with you, with trust intact and stronger than ever, obedience to your word, with your words guiding us away from destruction and hurt. Father, let us trust in you, the God who cares for us supremely. Lord, thank you for the hope we have in Christ this morning. I pray that that comes to fruition in the life of the one who has heard the good word and who has put their trust in you. Lord, bring salvation to those who believe in you. We love you. Thank you, Father, for the miracle of your care and your compassion. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. It is a perfect day.